Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that we get to sing together in unity. Uh, just the, the gift that is to, to uh, unite our voices as almost a symbol of the united spirit. And uh, we get to worship together doing that with you. And, and uh, Father, I just thank you for the prayers that the, those words and those songs are, that we just look forward to um, the day when heaven and earth will be one. And that this, uh, this created order will, uh, will be a place with uh, no peer, tears and no um, cruelty and no rebellion. And Father, we thank you for the, for the praise that uh, we are able to give you through the Psalms and the book that you have preserved for us that uh, reveals who you are. And we thank you that you are, are um, uh, that your promise is, is to bind us in the love of Christ. Father, we want to have your word uh, pierce our hearts this morning. We want to have your word uh, change us and transform us. And so to that end, I am asking this morning that the Holy Spirit come in a special way, in a way that, um, that is um, tangible and that is real and that uh, we can hear his voice as he does his binding work among us, as he does his convicting work, as he does his teaching work, and then as he does his uh, consolation and comfort work. And so, Father, we lay ourselves before you and ask you to do that. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we get started, I do want to say congratulations to Sarah Winters for graduating yesterday. What a joy that is. That was fun to be there, and I didn't know the other, well, I did know a couple other guys, that's right, I didn't know other couple people, but uh, it, was, it was fun to see Sarah walk across that stage, and it was fun to celebrate her yesterday, so congratulations. We are uh, in the book of Hebrews, uh, in uh, ch uh, chapter 12 is what we did last week, we talked about God's discipline. And uh, we shouldn't be shocked or surprised that as children of God, as, as daughters and sons of, of God, that he would treat us like sons and daughters of God. That uh, for our own well-being, he will correct us for the well-being of ourselves, but also the well-being of others. Uh, that this, uh, this discipline actually flows out of the love of God to his children. That shouldn't surprise us. And right after that, there is another section of warning in the book of Hebrews. And uh, we've already looked at two passages of, the, of warning in Hebrews chapter 10 and Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, chapter 12's warning kind of repeats the same theme, so we're not going to go over that again. But it does add a little uh, difference in the last verses of chapter 12. And that is, you get the picture that God is going to take creation by the, by, the, by the back of the neck and shake it. <laughs> he calls it, he said he's going to shake creation. And then all that stuff that's, that's not part of the kingdom of God will fall away. Uh, all that uh, cruelty, all those tears, all those things we've talked about, illness, all those things will fall away, and the only thing left standing will be the kingdom of heaven that will not be shaken, he says. And so that's kind of where he ends the book, and then he goes into chapter 13, which kind of serves as the epilogue, is the epilogue of the book. And it's a little bit different than the rest of the book because his admonitions are a little bit more specific and not general, but uh, we have to kind of keep that idea in mind that this, this coming this coming fulfillment of Christ's return 
and then as it applies to chapter 13 as we kind of uh, look into that. If you were to uh, look at the, if you're still reading the newspaper these days, and you were to look at a newspaper the next, tomorrow morning, and you'll see on the headlines, or if you're listening to cable news or whatever, wherever you get your news, you're likely to see uh, topics on the headlines that have to do with suffering, probably have to do with sex, uh, probably will have to do with power and oppression, and uh, will probably have to do with uh, people who are suffering and, uh, and, uh, and money and finance. You'll probably see those headlines on the, on the front page. Uh, because for a lot of people, that's what makes the world go round. Uh, you will not see probably any headline about Jesus on the front page. Uh, unless it's about somebody somewhere said something or did something to push an agenda or to explain a behavior or something that's usually not always that great. And so you might see Jesus on the front page like that, but normally you won't. Well, the book of Hebrews is probably one of the most important ancient documents we have on, the early, Christi on, on uh, early Christianity. And it does talk about suffering and sex and uh, power and oppression and finances, but it also talks about Jesus from beginning to end. It is a story, it is a, it is a document discussing Jesus. And that's what we find in verse 13, in chapter 13. And it culminates all in chapter 13 in this, uh, in this wonderful book where he is talking about the supremacy of Christ. And uh, that's what we're going to be looking at today in chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. This culmination of this book all about Jesus, all about the supremacy of Christ. And the book of Hebrews, as he reaches this, this sort of culmination of the book as, he as he's about ready to sign off he signs off in this really enigmatic statement in verse 8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever everything revolves around this everything he said before everything he's going to say afterward everything he, he's going to he's trying to get us get across is Jesus is the same yesterday today and forever it all revolves around this this one constant the only constant on earth is Jesus Christ. And he says he, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. And what he's getting at here, he's just discussed, he just discussed really through most of the book, the Old Covenant. And he's saying that Jesus is the same in the Old Covenant as in the New Covenant. That this is not some new revelation from a new God or a different God. This is a fresh revelation from the same God. And he even mentions Moses even suffered on behalf of the Messiah. Uh, implying that somehow Moses had some kind of inkling, some kind of idea that there was a Messiah coming. And he's saying this is no different. This, this Jesus that we're preaching is no different than the, than the Old Covenant. It's not coming from a different God. It's not a different message. It is a fresh revelation from the same God. It's, it's as, if, as if we've gotten to know somebody through phone calls and letter writing, and now we get to know them in person. I've never had a pen pal, but it's like that idea that you're getting to know somebody through a pen pal, and then you come to know them in person. Amen. He also says that he, Jesus Christ is the same forever, that when he comes to, to shake the kingdom, except for the unshakable kingdom, it's the same Jesus. It's the same Jesus from the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. As we're waiting our own fulfillment of the New Covenant when Jesus comes, it's the same Jesus Christ. And he also says that it's the same Jesus of today. It's the same Jesus of today. And he's saying, and he already, he already emphasized that in chapters 3 and 4. He's already talked about the Jesus of today. And what he's saying is that, that, that whatever you're confronting, whatever you're doing, you don't put it off. You don't put off 
coming to Jesus and building your life around him. Don't put it off. Whatever decisions you're, you're facing, whatever difficulty you're, you're confronting, whatever challenges in your life, whatever joy is in your life, it is, he is for today. And that's his whole point, everything getting across to this. And so when he comes to chapter 13, he is going to talk about, he's going he's to plunge right into the very gut of human existence. He's going to talk about some very specific things. And he's not doing this in the sense that these are the only areas that are important to him. He's kind of doing this as sort of this example. In other words, Jesus is relevant in just your daily existence. And he plunges into the gut of human existence of others, of power, of money, and sex. All those things that kind of define our human existence, he is dealing with it and he's relevant today. And so that's what he's doing in chapter 13. And he, he kind of reminds me, to me, chapter 13 is sort of like a, a summary of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he, he does, Jesus kind of does the same thing. He's given us a bunch of illustrations, a bunch of examples of what kingdom life looks like. Of what it looks like when we have this other alternative to, uh, presented to us, rather than the normal way people normally live. He says, you've got another option here, and here it is. Kingdom living. And I almost feel like this is what he's doing in chapter 13. He's sort of almost summarizing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he starts off with a general, overarching command. Mutual love must remain. That is the guiding principle. That's the guiding fundamental of what it means to live in the kingdom. And it's kind of a strange sentence. It's really only two words, three words if you count the article. But it's only two words here. And it's a command. The command is to remain or dwell or, or permanently or, co or exist. And it's almost like he's commanding love to stay. It's like we would command a dog to stay. Well, he's saying love, stay. And, and he's using this wonderful word that we all know, Philadelphia. Brotherly love or mutual love. This idea of love between us, love between God's people. He says it must remain a constant and the word here is, is, is to dwell. In other words, we reside in God's love. We, we reside in mutual brotherly love. And we have to keep this in mind because this is the guiding principle of everything he's going to say from here on out. Okay? Now, I've divided the two sections. I've divided this passage, uh, verses 1 through 8, in two different kinds of sections. And it's kind of ambivalent a little bit. Uh, I'm looking at the first few uh, commands as, as a relational holiness. I'm calling that relational holiness. And then the other two, I'm calling it personal holiness, even though that's not really a great term because all, all holiness is relational. But one kind of has to do with the condition of the heart, and the other has to do with relationship. And if you remember last week when I was talking about God's discipline, my argument was that he, was, he, he mentions this twice, that his discipline is to promote us and to develop us into holiness. And I tried to argue last week that the core of holiness was love. That um, we can define, when we hear holiness, we think of all kinds of things come to our mind that are all parts of it, but at its core, it's love. I mean, we think of rules and regulations. Well, that's really legalism that's actually lethal to holiness. It's part of it, it yeah, it's part of it, but we're going to see this is a, a flowing out of love. Uh, we, we see that as, as separation, that we got to be holy, God, it's, God is separate, and that's part of it too. But we, when we make that the core of holiness, then we get into this, this, this closed-off bubble where we exclude everything else, 
And it just perpetuates this us versus them mentality that everything out there is awful and we've got to be adversarial and aggressive against it. And that, to what purpose? And, and then uh, some people say, well, it's, it has to do with uh, being, being, uh, being set apart and being clean. Well, clean and pure, we just kind of limit that to one area, and that's our sex life. And, and again, the question is, pure for what? Just to be pure? Just to be clean? What, what exactly is he getting at here? And I think this being the very first thing he says after all of that, love must remain, to me, supports my argument here, that holiness is about love. That out of love, that will flow. We will naturally do the deeds God wants us to do. That it is active, it is proactive, it is responsive. That is, there is action here. That we will automatically do those things out of love. Example, uh, uh, Rob can tell you that I'm a kind of an aggressive driver. <laughs> and and uh, we, we joke about whether I, I was because driving for 20 years in, in Latin America, maybe part of it. But I, after going back to Dallas, I was driving in Dallas to, to visit family, and I realized, no, it's Dallas that taught me how to drive aggressively. I don't know if you've ever been to Dallas. It is unbelievable. I mean, you really have to, you really have to be aggressive to drive there, to get on those freeways. Well, now I can obey the speed limit out of fear of being, getting the ticket. Or I can obey the speed limit out of love for my passengers or out of love for the safety of other people. That's the difference. I'm still obeying the speed limit, but one comes out of fear or guilt, but the other comes out of love. And what I think he's getting here is mutual love remains, and we do that, if that's the core of our holiness, we will do that. We will treat people with respect. Amen. We will be different from the rest of the world. Amen. We will be separate but in a good way, not in a fearful way. That's what he's talking about. Mutual love remains. And so he goes on to say this, this uh, personal holiness, I'm talking about, real, I'm sorry, relational holiness. He goes on and says, do not neglect hospitality to strangers because though that, through that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. So the first thing he says is that this brotherly love, this mutual love, needs to radiate out to other people to strangers, to foreigners. And that's the word he uses here. And he's actually using a play on words here because the first word he says, Philadelphia, brotherly love must remain. And now he says, Philozenos, you've got to show love to foreigners and strangers. And we know that word, words we've heard a lot lately in the last few years, xenophobia, which is this fear or, or hatred of the foreigner or the stranger. Well, this is the word he uses. He says, if you remain in brotherly love so that you will be a stranger love, stranger lover. Radiant in brotherly love so that you will be a, instead of a xenophobe, you will be a xenophile, a lover of strangers, a lover of foreigners. And he says, that will radiate out. And he says, you might, you might be entertaining angels. It happened to Abraham. It might happen to you. And we may never know. We may never know this side of eternity. But he says you do it, you might be entertaining angels. So relational holiness, holiness extends out to the stranger. It also extends to living in solidarity with those who are oppressed by the powerful. 
He says, remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison. Those who are being tortured as though you felt their torment. That's pretty heavy to do. That you somehow live in solidarity with this. This takes a lot of imagination and a lot of empathy. This. The first chapters of Christianity, the first 300 years were pretty dark. Uh, Christians were persecuted. They were uh, imprisoned and they were tortured. Around the year 400, the roles were reversed. The roles switched. Where Christians then became the powerful. And they began to read the Bible differently. And we know the history that empires and emperors beginning to conquer and oppress other people, including each other. We know the history through that. And I think the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, is calling us to reread the Bible like it was originally written through those 300 years. And it's going to take a lot of humility to do this, to live in solidarity, to understand this, to feel, to be in prison, with especially those who are in prison because of the faith. It's going to take a lot of empathy to do this. We kind of just forget them. And he's calling us to love them, pray for them, and do what you can to support them. And frankly, you know, they're, they're a forgotten part in my life, to be honest. And he's calling us to, to live in solidarity with them, live in solidarity with those who are tortured. And that is really tough to do. It takes a lot of imagination. It takes a lot of empathy. Uh, Henry Louis Gates, who, who does that program, Finding Your Roots, which I find really fascinating. He was discussing roots with another African-American, and they were talking about slavery. And he goes, you know what? I would have flunked slavery. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. And I thought about that, and I go, you know what? I would have flunked persecution. I don't know if I could have handled it. I really don't. And he is calling us to identify with these people, especially those of the faith who are suffering because of Christ, who are being tortured or in prison, to do what we can to pray for them, to remember to pray for them, and do what we can to support them, to reach out and think and trust those. And I think he's saying that out of love, this is not that hard to do. It's not that hard to do if we do this out of love. Now, Amen. It, we can't, when we look at, uh, at the oppressed and we look at... Um, those who are in prison, and I, think we, I don't think we can limit it to just only those of the faith. I think it expands more than that, that we look at those people, we look at these people out of empathy and love and trust, and we need to be careful. I think what he's calling us to do is that we can't dehumanize them, but neither can we superhumanize them. That we can't say, oh, they're, 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 they're wonderful, and we, we put them on a pedestal and put them on it as heroes, and they sure, they, a lot of them they, we do need to admire, but we can't put that pressure on them. What he is calling us to do, I think, is to recognize the value of all people, to recognize the preciousness of human beings. That, yes, we are in a spiritual warfare, but we have to use the right weapons. And the right weapons is to remember those in love and pray for those and support them. It radiates out that he is calling us to this path of humility and uh, compassion. He then goes on to what I consider personal holiness was the condition of the heart. How does this love work out in the condition of the heart? And he goes on to talk about our sexuality, which is fundamental of who we are. 
Let marriage be held in honor by all, and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. It's, um, what he's saying here, I think, is what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, and I think he's saying, guard your heart. Guard your heart in this area, that this is not a loving thing to do. It's, it's personal, but it affects how we deal with other people. Now, it affects without love. If we, if we do this, it's not, if we get away from this and not stop guarding our heart, it, it not only affects our spouse or, or um, other, our families, but it also affects the other person. And he said, this is not a loving thing to do. This is not a loving thing to do. Uh, don't think he's saying, he didn't play this trick on us and say, uh, I'm going to give you this sexual desire, but don't you think or act sexually. You know, it, that's not where he's, what he's getting at. He is saying just the opposite. He is saying that, that, that this is a place, this is a place to where we can manifest our, our unity, our oneness, and our intimacy. And what I think he's saying here is that we all have this desire for intimacy. In fact, I would argue that most of the sin that comes out of our lives comes out of a sense of loneliness and lack of intimacy. This idea of doing selfish things and, and doing things that, that because we're not going to get enough of something that we grab hold onto it. And I would say out of this feeling of loneliness is when most of our sin comes. And we keep hammering, hammering, that our society keeps hammering at the sex button, hoping that maybe a little intimacy will dribble out. And it won't. This is where we find it. This is where two people come together and there is this holy space created of intimacy. And that's what I think he's getting at. And there are other things that, that, that are casualties in this area when the, when the marriage bed is defiled. Now, one other thing I want to mention about marriage bed being defiled, it's, we immediately go to the, the idea of an affair, okay? And yes, that's, that's an issue, but there are other ways too it can be defiled. It can be defiled when sex is used as a weapon, or it's withheld as a weapon, or to punish, or there's abuse. There's lots of ways that that can be defiled. And he's saying, keep it, keep it undefiled. Don't hold contempt in the marriage bed. And I think if we were to do this, we would see a lot of other things disappear. I think we would see sexual harassment disappear. That if we're no longer acting out of lack of intimacy and we're acting more out of love, we would see sexual harassment go away. The Me Too movement, it, it, they don't, it's not particularly Christian, but, and they, yes, they may go over the top, but they're kind of on the right path. That we treat each other as human beings and sexual harassment would disappear. Sexism, the idea of dominating and control on the basis of sex, I think would disappear if we listened to this, if we reacted out of love. And then the people who are not treated positively because they're not as quote-unquote hot as someone else, that would disappear if we were doing it out of Philadelphia, out of mutual love. All these things, I think, would disappear. There is a more excellent way. And along with that is finances. Again, it comes out of this, this, this belief of scarcity. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. 
So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That's finances. And you look back at the book of Genesis, Abraham was blessed so that he would be a blessing to the rest of the world. And that's pretty much kind of how it works through all the whole book until we get to chapter 47. And the first time in the book, there's not enough. There's scarcity. And someone says, oops. Pharaoh says, I had a dream. There's a famine. There's not enough. Therefore, I need to get everything. And so what does he do? He gets an administrator, Joseph. And so Joseph, on behalf of the Pharaoh, acts. And what do people do? They come to him for food. And they use collateral. They say, would you have collateral? Yes, I have some land. So they take the land. You have other collateral, then the, the food continues to run out. Do you have other collateral? Yes, we have cattle. You can take the cattle. Until finally they say, do you have other collateral? And they say, no, just us. You know, so they take us. And that's how the Jews ended up in slavery. All through economic transactions. All because of scarcity. We have another story. We have a different story. We have the story of manna. We have the story of a bread that's so much better that you don't even have to bake, but it's so much better than just crass materialism. We have that. And I really wonder if the things that we're fighting over, as liberals and conservatives are fighting each other over, I wonder if really the basic issue is that we really don't trust God to be a God of abundance that we think that he is a God of scarcity. And so we fight over that. We're fighting over limited resources when the resources are not limited. He is a God of abundance. And we feel like in our world that nothing is safe. None of my stuff is safe. Cyberspace is not even safe anymore. Nothing is safe. And so it's great disappointment and yet we can come back and say to the world, we have another option. You have another option. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We have another option. The alternative of the kingdom of God, of living in the kingdom. Now, it's a tragedy to think that everybody is running around thinking they're not getting their deserved amount of sex or money or possessions. And God's saying, trust me, trust me. I will supply your needs, whatever they may be. This isn't just some Christian triumphalism of prosperity theology, okay? It can be hard, it can be difficult. We can suffer persecution. But he's saying, it's enough. I will never leave you. And Jesus tells us the same thing on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, invest in the treasures of heaven. Those things will not rust. They will not break. They will not run away. They will not die. They will not die off. Invest in those things. That's the smart investment. To invest in other things. It doesn't mean you don't have things. I'm not saying that. Okay? He's not saying that. I mean, we have furniture because it's sentimental. You know, that's, that's okay. We have paintings in my house and stuff because... Sue is addicted to beauty, which doesn't explain why she married me, but that's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll pass that over. But the point is that we invest in the things of heaven. That's the smart way. And what the passage that Rob read earlier 
that you do that, and it's like building your life on a rock. And that's the whole point of these eight verses, is that a life worth living is built on the one constant, the only constant on earth, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen. And before he gets to the final verse, he says, remember your leaders who spoke God's message to you, reflect on the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. That's a pretty scary verse, uh, if you're a pastor. <laughs> uh, because I keep thinking to myself, I am 63, but I still keep thinking to myself in my 20s. Just that somebody who's 20 and has got something wrong with him. That's right. <laughs> I still keep thinking that. And I keep thinking of my dad, who knew all the answers. You know, I could trust him. And I think of the people who, who taught me, my mentors, you know, and I could trust them. And then to wake up and go, wait a minute, am I that guy now? Oh my goodness, we're in big trouble. <laughs> but he's saying, and so I, this, I'm challenging, I'm saying this for us to, to hopefully have people in our lives that we can look to and say, and, and can see and can imitate. But I'm also saying to those of us who are getting grayer and balder, say, we got to step up. They're looking at us now. And he says, look at those who brought the message to you. And notice that he doesn't say, do what they do. He says, imitate their faith. I don't have to do exactly everything Walt Baker did. Okay? I don't have to do everything he did, but I do have to imitate his faith because he was a man of faith. And I would challenge us to say, find those people that, that we respect and love and imitate their faith. You don't have to do everything they do. Say one guy gets up, at an hour, you know, gets up and does, spends an hour in the Bible every morning. Great. That's great for him. If it works better for you to spend some time in silence in the morning or some Bible study in the afternoon or whatever, then that works fine. The point is imitate the faith. Imitate the trust. We're not talking about a belief system here. We're talking about the trust. Life the life that is worth living is built on that one constant on earth. The one and only thing that is sure, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the writer of Hebrews is calling us to come to terms with that. Come to terms with that in every area of our life. Our relationship with others, our relationship with our, ourself, our spouses, our possessions, the big three, money, sex, and power come to terms with that that this is how we live this is how we live that we don't have to be obsessed with that loneliness and separateness that we experience that causes us to grasp and to reach out that we rely on the trust of the abundance of God that we don't have to compete that we don't have to hate the stranger or the foreigner, that we do move out of our separateness and our loneliness, that we do not, that we do invest in the treasures of heaven, that we do practice mutual love. This is how we live. 
This is how we treat our possessions. In, in uh, Colossians, Paul tells his readers that the fullness of the deity dwelt in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, this is in chapter 3 if you want to look it up. And then he goes on to say, and in him you find your fulfillment. And the writer of Hebrews is saying the same thing. The deity of God, the whole deity of God dwells in Jesus. And you find your fulfillment in him. Build your life on the one thing that is constant. You will find your fulfillment there, so start living like it, he says. That's where you find it. Not in the loneliness, not in the separation, not in grasping for what you think you don't have. Living in solidarity with people, recognizing their value, and practicing mutual love. We're going to celebrate communion